First Samuel 19 today. We're going to finish that chapter. As you turn there, I want you to take great hope in this fact that even though there is this great tension in God's providence and human freedom, God's, God wins. <laughs> You're just saying that. There is God's plan, God's will, and then there is human freedom as far as decisions and choices. We talked about that last time, that, that people make choices, and oftentimes it affects, sometimes profoundly affects, where they end up at. And sometimes this, that someone we love makes choices, and it affects us as we have to make our choices. But there's this pendulum swing that just as sure and certain that we make choices and those choices matter and they have impact and weight and ripples in our world. There is this whole other plane, this whole other force, if you will, that God has made some choices and those choices are final, unchangeable. God uh, cannot be thwarted. We just listened to Isaiah the prophet, but God also says through him that so my word that comes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. Now this doesn't always happen for us, right? Um, like I had lots of plans back in the day when I was a young kid in fourth grade. I wanted to be a musician, a singer. And I remember uh, being in elementary school and, you know, the teachers, I think the, all they're trying to do is to get 10-year-olds to realize there is a future um, and we can sometimes make plans. They, they asked us to draw what we think we might want to be when we get older. So I verbalized and I put on paper, uh, I'm going to be a musician, a singer, a music artist. A lot of good those declarations did for me. <laughs> I have no regrets of not becoming a musician, and in fact, a lot of people would have regrets if I ever did. <laughs> but the point is this, that sometimes we waste words. We waste declarations or vows. That's just an illustration. I was tasked as a 10-year-old to come up with an answer, and that's what I had, no biggie. But other times, the declarations that people make have more weight. Sometimes, in fact, I'd say most times, people go to war over their ideas and ideals and declarations of independence. We've seen what causes and political ideology, ideologies and, and statements, what sorts of movements that begin in people's hearts. And indeed, people often find their identities wrapped up in a sentiment or a vow. Saul of the Old Testament his identity is this, I'm king, I'm king. And his life could be understood then as an outflowing from that adopted statement about himself. The biggest outflowing, the biggest visible force from that is his wanting the anointed king, David, dead. And we're in the chapter where this hostility 
And therefore the chase that King Saul is, is going to do, give David is rising to force, full force. He's gonna do some crazy things before it's all said and done. And last time his decisions concerning David had caused his own kids to make their choices about David. So, so far Jonathan has stood up for David and Michael, David's wife, had helped David escape, even lied for him. But today we're going to see rather clearly Saul's choice for his life. The vow, the declaration, the cause, and the identity that he's trying to live his life with meet. I don't know if I want to say surrender, but it will yield to, rather involuntarily, I might add, to the declaration that God has had over David and his kingship and Israel. So if you're able to, and you don't mind, let's stand one last time and read 1 Samuel 19, verses 18 through 24 together. We read, So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything Saul had done to him. There he and Samuel left and stayed at Naoth. When it was reported to Saul that David was at Naoth and Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and they even began prophesying. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Seku and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Naoth and Ramah, someone said. So he went to Naoth and Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him. And as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naoth in Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. That is why they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? I hope that explains it and clears it up for you. (laughs) Let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we study these few verses today and unpack them, we pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing would be here inspiring us, giving us your word, your truth. Father, help us to be surrendered to you. Help us to yield to you, to love you and serve you to be content with what you say about our lives and our identities and how we are children of God. Help us to live from the identity that you give us. Father, have your way in our hearts. Be the one that's speaking, and please move me out of the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Is Saul also among the prophets? Prophets, voice, God's voice is a theme throughout this passage and it it opens on David returning to the true prophet of the Lord. And then it moves to a bunch of unwilling prophets, people prophesying. And then it ends on this phrase, is Saul also among the prophets? I brought up Isaiah 55, 11, how God's word does not return to him empty. The gospel writer John recounts creation, but then he says, in the beginning was the word. 
words, prophesying, this seems to be both an overwhelming force in our world, but completely understated, underestimated, indeed completely underreceived, if I could use a word like that. The word of God, indeed, the sovereignty and providence, and I made this up for you, what God says is what will be this <laughs> that this world yields to. I am joined by a, a theological parentage when I say that I believe the Bible says people have free choices, but our choices does nothing in terms of threatening God getting his way. Now, a big caveat God wants everyone to be saved. <laughs> well, not everyone is. Why? Free choices of human beings. So does God get His way? Well, not in that sense, but He has made a way for everyone. Furthermore, the people who won't be in heaven, I believe, are people who won't want to be in heaven anyways. <laughs> Have you ever dragged someone along where they never wanted to be? It made the trip very exciting, didn't it? People have free choices, but our choices do nothing in terms of threatening God getting his way. David is anointed king. Saul was king, was rejected as king, but still wants to be king, even though God anointed David to be king. So Saul has chosen bitterness and rage and is bent on killing David because experience apparently told him, as it tells us geniuses who have to take after King Saul, that bitterness, rage, and murder are great things to build our lives on. But because of King Saul desiring to kill David, David is finally running. 1 Samuel 19 is the, is the chapter where every reader should now get David's on the run now. That's his part in the play. That's the season in his life. He's a fugitive. And while the opening of 1 Samuel 19 was this, this peel back the curtain and let's see Saul's family play for a while, we saw Jonathan in his decisions, Saul in his decisions, Michael in her decisions, but now the camera pans to David. What's this guy doing? We find that he returns to a character that we haven't seen in a while. We read, So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah, where he was stationed lots of the time, and told him everything Saul had done to him. Interesting that David goes to Samuel. I mean, outside of Samuel anointing David when, when David was much younger, upwards of, who knows, maybe even almost 10 years at this point, we actually have no clue, but we don't even know if these two kept a relationship. At least the author of the book has never led us on to believe that. So as far as Sam, or I should say, as far as Samuel and Saul are concerned, we were told back in chapter 15, verse 35, that Saul and Samuel never saw each other again. And if you just read this passage, you said, well, yeah, they did. <laughs> Well, the point of chapter 15's statement is that they didn't seek each other's company. Samuel's relative departure from the narrative, though, should not make us think any less of him. Samuel is a character whose prominence and significance should be uh, for us when, you know, it's almost like whenever that highest paid actor and the most famous and well-known celebrity returns to the stage from time to time. And whenever we walks in, we sit up and we say, what's this guy doing? Glad he's back. What's he going to say? What's his part? 
And as far as the narrator lets us know, Samuel is the voice of God. His birth came about from uh, from someone who was long a childless mother, and she had vowed, more words, to render him to the Lord should he come. And he was born, she kept her part of the bargain. Before Samuel started hearing and speaking for the Lord, we were actually told in 1 Samuel 3, 1, in those days the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. And actually this tells us a lot about Samuel's priestly guardian, Eli. In fact, the story would tell us that Eli and his family would be rejected for their disobedience. But by the time Samuel heard and started speaking for the Lord, we read by the end of chapter 3, Samuel grew. The Lord was with him and he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's like saying, and from sea to shining sea, knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. Do you ever have those moments of spiritual blah? <laughs> He's like, yeah, every Sunday listening to you, Kevin. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you think, man, I must have the wrong number. The Lord's not speaking to me. The Bible reading is, is bland. Church is bland. And either... Kevin's preaching is horrible or I'm just not hearing things. And then something happens and it's like the blinders are lifted. I feel like this was the case for all Israel. Samuel is the last judge. Now, judge is not always gown and gavel, dealing out legal ruling sense. But, uh, you know, if people didn't throw a fit, I would like to submit a change to the title of that book and call it the Book of Deliverers. But we're given a, a summary statement at the time of the judges and that is, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. See, these deliverers were not morally upright, close to God sort of people. In fact, half of them seemed like they had to be dragged into submission or tricked to do what God was calling them to do. But Samuel is different. Samuel is right before the Lord. He has an ear to God's heartbeat. And without going through all of 1 Samuel again, read it for yourself, but David returning to Samuel here is like David returning to the one man in all of Israel who perhaps has the closest and most intimate relationship with God. Uh, we, we tend to forget, but this is before the Holy Spirit. This is before the presence of God was close and intimate with everyone. And the prophet of God, this prophet of God had anointed David years prior. And perhaps David is running to him, coming to him as if he's as on he's on the run from the present king who is bent on killing him. Maybe it's in a way of saying, "Am I king now? <laughs> this would be a great time for me to become king." <laughs> then he, David, and Samuel left and stayed at Naoth. Now this isn't likely a, a city. The word means the camps, and so perhaps this is a section of Ramah for a kind of prophet's boarding house. That's what some people have suggested. Um, perhaps Samuel leads it. Perhaps they're just a community. We don't know. But David's returned to the Lord's prophet. And now we're shown a cast of unwilling prophets. Uh, beginning in verse 19. When it was reported to Saul that David was at Naoth and Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, The Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. 
When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and they even began prophesying. So this is when the personal choices meets the unbending will of God, right? Something's happening here. Nobody's able to retrieve David for Saul. Because they get close to David, to Samuel, to the prophets, and they start prophesying. We don't know what they're saying. We could speculate, but the point we're supposed to see is that God's got his hand on David. This is a very supernatural occurrence. It, it kind of, in some ways, reminds me of Pentecost with the inauguration of the kingdom, a season of the kingdom of God. I say season because one might argue that the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and uh, initiation of the Great Commission all bring the kingdom of God in. And as Christ ascended as king to rule and reign, people involuntarily, when the Spirit of God fell on them, prophesied. Now, the difference with the situation in David's time is that Saul's agents were unwilling. But this is... How strong, how right, and how valid and true the Word of God is. His Word stands even in unwilling and unbelieving hearts. You're going to have to think with me a little bit more, and you're like, this has already been too much of a headache. I'm going to... <laughs> Sometimes it sneaks up on us, and we don't know until we spend our time at looking at the same frames and footage of our past over and over that we've been fulfilling God's word. Uh, I want to give you a few examples. Here we see a supernatural example. God's will, his way, his word, it's happening supernaturally. God seems to be playing possession, excuse the negative connotations of that word, and people are prophesying his word. But there are times when providentially, People unknowingly fulfill God's word. There are also times when people negatively and to their judgment still fulfill God's word. And what does that mean for personal responsibility in people? There are times when people providentially and unknowingly fulfill God's word. I saw this in the book of Ruth. Many of you may remember we went through the book of Ruth and I I think that was my own personal favorite series. And I'm about 836% critical of my own sermons, but that was a, a personal favorite of mine, that series. And I remember that in the book of Ruth, where the word of God provided for Ruth in the most tangible of, of sen- senses. If you know the story of Ruth, uh, there was an Israelite lady, Naomi, whom I'd argue is the main character of the book. She marries a doofus. <laughs> it's implied in the Hebrew. It's not at all, actually. But her husband's a doofus because he leaves the covenant community. Now, yes, there was a famine, and it seemed like a great thing to do to provide for his family. But that's a no-no. He leaves Israel, and he puts down roots in Moab. Naomi and her husband's sons take Moabite wives. I mean, this is about as blatant as a Christian family leaving here, moving to a Muslim or a Hindu or a whatever's not Christian neighborhood and saying, yep, let's put down roots, let's assimilate. We don't know if it's judgment or what, but Naomi's doofus husband and the two boys die in Moab. And Naomi is left without a provider. She's poor, she's penniless, with two mourning Moabite daughters-in-law. 
This is just by verse 5 of the whole book. And you're like, why am I reading this? <laughs> One of the daughters-in-law, spoiler, her name's Ruth. She tags along with uh, Naomi to Israel. And this is where the, the word of God, the words of the Lord in your hands, begin to provide for Ruth and Naomi. The law talks about feeding the alien, the widow, and the poor. And the law talks about providing a kinsman redeemer for those who lost their husbands. And Ruth is literally fed and provided for and also eventually gets is given a husband all because of what God's word said. By Ruth's time, this was the established law of the land, and I could be wrong, but I don't think when Ruth showed up and Boaz, that's Ruth's husband-to-be, great guy, but Boaz was a righteous man, and I don't think he pulled out the scroll of Leviticus and said, well, what do I need to do here? Well, crud, that's right, i got to feed the poor ladies around here. No, he was tender-hearted to God. People unknowingly, providentially, start fulfilling God's word. And God's word provided literally for Ruth. His word does not return to him empty. It accomplishes what he sends it for. There are also times when negatively and to their judgment, people will fulfill God's word. The most apparent of this to me is in the New Testament uh, when all the gospel accounts, I think, record Jesus saying about Judas, for the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. That's a reference to prophecy, to God's word. The Son of Man will go as has been prophesied, as God has intended, as God has planned But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. So do you hear the personal responsibility of Judas in that? God's will, man's personal responsibility. Now, some theologians look at this concept, and I guess because they think that God's power needs defending. They will say, well, yes, God didn't ordain sin, but... In some real direct, just not self-incriminating way, God is 100% operating Judas to do what he did. And if that sounds confusing, it's because it is. I'm more inclined to say God knew Jesus was coming. God knew what Judas would do. God worked that in to bring about redemption anyways. So Judas and in fact every other enemy of Jesus in his execution, in their own self-chosen sins, became instruments of God's will. God's that smart. (laughs) He's a bit bigger than we are. And just as Saul's agents became unwilling prophets, I want you to take hope that, guess what? The very enemies of the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God that are alive and at work today, God foresaw them. God's not up in heaven pacing back and forth. My kingdom is about to crumble. What am I going to do? No. God factored them into his perfect will and plan. And that great verse, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The hero of Israel, the giant slayer, the anointed king is being hunted. Saul's murderous intentions are public and they're full on. The agents are dispatched, but as they draw near, God makes them unwilling prophets. Interesting whenever you consider it 
in the context of the rest of the chapter. See, Jonathan chooses to protect David, and he does. No problem. No divine intervention. Michael chooses to protect David, maybe even sins in the process. Nevertheless, she's successful. David gets away. No divine intervention. Saul is doing all he can to get at David, and this this starts happening. Group after group. What's happening? How come David can't be retrieved? Well, what do powerful men usually say? Whenever you want something done, you got to do it yourself. So Saul tries, verse 22. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Seku and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Naoth in Ramah, someone said. Now the author here is going to use some pictures from earlier in the book. We were first introduced to Saul in 1 Samuel 9. That was another time when human freedom, the daily life of a person, intersected with the will of God in a divine encounter. Do you remember what Saul was doing? He was looking for some donkeys. He wasn't looking for a throne. And as I talked about two weeks ago, those decisions, those days were at the time, they just didn't seem big. They just seemed like day-to-day life. They became milestones. Saul was just looking for some donkeys. He was about to give up until his servant said, well, Samuel's here. Maybe he's worth reaching out to. Maybe he could help us. And I thought about this as I was writing this. Yeah, because every prophet wants to help you with your donkey. But 1 Samuel 9, 11 and 12 says, As they were climbing the hill to the city, they found some young, young woman coming out to draw water and said, Is the seer here? The woman answered, Yes, he is ahead of you. Hurry, he just now entered the city because there's a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. It's interesting to me that truly the first time that Saul seeks Samuel, that is the chosen priest who took the place of the rejected priest Eli, it's at a well where he is directed to Samuel. And now Saul, as king, approaches seeking the anointed king who's going to take the place of the rejected King Saul. Saul again comes to a well. In fact, the well not being named in 1 Samuel 9-11 in his first encounter. Some speculate this could also be the same place. We don't know. However, Saul directed... or see here. Saul is looking for David and the prophet of God, the chosen prophet who took the place of Eli we will see that the rest of this chapter is actually a literary symbol, a literary ending of Saul's reign. Because whether he's really at the same place geographically, spiritually he's returning to where it all started. And the story will shift now more to David's running from Saul. David becomes the main character. And for all intents and purposes for the author, Saul's reign is done. What we care about Saul's reign is done. We see the particular thread of Saul's reign needled all the more as we hear the phrase again. So he went to Naoth and Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him, and as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naoth in Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all the day and all the night. That is why they say is Saul among the prophets." Is Saul also among the prophets? There was another time when the Spirit of God fell on Saul. 
There was another time when Saul prophesied. And there was another story given as to why people use that phrase, is Saul also among the prophets? We get the irony of that statement though, I hope. I mean, I know he's dead, but it's like saying tongue-in-cheek, is Hugh Hefner among those who faithfully attend church every Sunday? So that's the color, the irony of the phrase. When Saul was in his first days when he met Samuel, we were told some amazing things that if you just opened up and started reading about this Saul that we've been reading about for months now, you would not believe it. We read in 1 Samuel 9 or 10, 9 through 11, that when Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him and he prophesied along with them. For everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? God changed his heart. The Spirit of God came powerfully on Saul. He prophesied. And whenever I preached this passage about 14 billion years ago in 1 Samuel 10, uh, I said this and I stand by it. I don't know, but I think Saul is among the faithful at this time. I think Saul might be among the righteous. He, he has a relationship with God here. And when God changes someone's heart, we call that a new covenant work of grace. When, when God comes powerfully on someone and he prophesies, we usually tend to think that there is a relationship with God in that person. Now, some folks of certain theological backgrounds say, well, no, Saul was never a believer. He was just deluded that he was for a while. And they'll bring up passages like what John says, they went out from us, but they were never among us. And I would say, yes, for John's specific situation, and certainly that happens as well today, but that's not the only pre- reason that people leave the church. My point is is that I believe Saul was in it for a while. He was there, and it makes his disobedience and his rebellion all the sadder. Was there more that Samuel could do? Was there more that could have been done so that Saul didn't spiral into what he became? Well, the book makes clear that Samuel confronted him. And in fact, God didn't seem to lose sleep over it too much. Chapter 16 opens up. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, I just get this picture that Samuel is praying night after night, crying, and he's wondering, what have I done? I was the judge of Israel. I had them before God, but the people strong-armed me. They wanted a king. God went along with it, so I had to. But now we have this nut job who's not listening to God. That's also in the Hebrew. Just kidding. (laughs) Israel's going down a hole, and it's like God's knocking on Samuel's door. Hey, I'm over it, buddy. (laughs) Let's move on. Let's get cracking. I got David in store. And we get these two pictures. A young, unassuming donkey searcher (laughs) coming up to find the chosen priest, stopping at a well, being directed, having God fall on him, and he's prophesying, and the people are saying, is Saul among the prophets? And then an older, disobedient, maddening shell of a king coming up looking for the anointed king, stopping at a well, being directed, having God fall on him, and he unwillingly prophesies, so the people say, is Saul among the prophets? But furthermore, this time we're told that Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. 
The symbol is this, exposed, humbled. In fact, there were five actions in these verses that cue us into this, that Saul is completely under God's control. All the choices, all the angry, I'm king, David's going to die, all these expressions of human freedom and rebellion, of thinking, I can have my way before God. Sometimes, I believe sometimes you can have your way, but there are some things where God says, sorry, not your option here. Calvin says, Dad, I want to watch TV. That's completely my decision. Yes, you may watch TV. Calvin then says, I want to watch Thomas the Train. And I knew his desire, I know his desires are usually Thomas, Berenstein Bears, Veggie Tales, but I let him have his choice and he chooses Thomas. Calvin says, Dad, I want to take the bike without you and ride to Papa Phil's and Grandma Bonnie's. No, you're four, kid. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> Some situations, Calvin exercises free will that I grant to him. Other times, the answer is completely mine and my decision's final. David is anointed. He is going to be king. Five actions that that show us whether uh, King Saul likes it or not, he's yielding to God's control. Quite involuntarily, I might, I might add. First, it took the Spirit of God to come upon um, Saul. There we go. Saul was headed there to kill David. And as he's coming into the presence of Samuel and David, the Spirit of God falls on Saul. I'm assuming that the Spirit of God is not going to harm his own anointed. <laughs> Secondly, Saul removes his clothes. Saul thinks David wants to kill him. Saul probably loathes Samuel because Samuel's spoken to the truth about him losing the kingdom. Why would you just take off your clothes before them to, so they can get a better hit at you? Thirdly, Saul prophesied in front of Samuel. Again, Samuel is likely Saul's enemy. And just how an atheistic, God-hating person would never come to me and say, I want to co-preach a sermon series with you about how God is alive and well. So I don't think uh, Saul would like to prophesy with Samuel. Fourth, Saul fell naked before Samuel and all the prophets <clears throat> that night. If you need a contemporary picture, President Joe Biden's not showing up at a park somewhere where ministers and Christians are gathered to fall naked before them. <laughs> this is obviously a great show of shame and humiliation to Saul. Again, he's likely doing it compelled by the Spirit of God. And finally, that connection I made before is Saul among the prophets. It's out of character for him. And it's the fifth of five actions to show us this. Saul's human freedom and his ability to exercise it has met the bumper of God's will. God's going to have his way. Saul came to kill David. Not going to happen. God's going to have his way. For some of us, this is hopeful news. For others, this is eh, news. And then for some of us, it's bad news, hopeful news. God's going to have his way. Some of you, me too, we live in this world of fear, of stupid. And I don't say this to make you feel dumb. I say this in the locker room coach love, but stupid, unnecessary, unfounded, in fact, ill-consuming fear. Fear that the values of the kingdom of God are shattering and bad things are coming in the way that Christians talk. I, I feel like they think God loses. Like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> and I can say that because that's biblical. Jesus said all the time to the Pharisees who thinks it's people's job to cater to God and buy his favor 
Jesus annoyed the junk out of them time after time and he said to the most educated Bible teachers of his day, have you not read in the scriptures? Like that's their job. If you're afraid because that guy's in office, those people are parading down streets, those persecutors chopped off another head, sure, show concern on each thing that is necessary, but you and I have no logical reason to fear. God's going to have his way. And that means just how God took the betraying heart of Judas, the cowardly hearts of his disciples, the conspiring hearts of the Jewish hierarchy, or the bloodthirsty hearts of the Romans, and the execution of his own son, and saved the world with all of that. He's got the guy's agenda, those parading people's agenda, the persecutors' agendas in front of him to do work with, and God is an excellent, conniving, miraculous redeemer. And I can't wait to see what he does with it all. God's going to have his way. For some people, this is just eh, news. Like, you didn't see this one coming. It's personal. You've been wondering, Kevin, I've sinned a lot in my life. I've done some junk I'm not proud of. And the news is this. God can redeem that. God can use that. It's not what you should have done, but the good news about serving a Redeemer is that he's going to use your $4.38 you brought to buy something way out of your price range because he's a Redeemer. Or maybe it's this, Kevin, I'm a Christian, but I feel like I've been spinning my wheels. I live day in, day out. I don't get all this Christian stuff. I'm trying my best. But God's going to have his way. And maybe that neighbor that's been in the peripheral that you run into from time to time but have never suspected would have been God's plan for you, that neighbor is going to be witness to. God's going to have his way. Maybe in this season where you've not been praying or you've not been exercising your faith, maybe God's going to have his way and the Bible's going to come alive. Maybe that relationship that needs worked on is it's news to you, but God's going to have his way. For some people, this is bad news. It's bad news for Saul. Because even though God's going to have his way and Saul isn't, what is Saul going to do? He's still going to combat him. What I wish First Samuel would have recorded is this. Saul went home quite aware of the losing war he was playing. He renounced his throne. He ended the kingdom of David. He's retired and repented. But no. See, for some people, God's sovereignty, God's power, God's throne, illogically, and I want to emphasize, illogically, impassions rebels to be more rebellious. Because that always works, right? (laughs) I'm sovereign of the universe. I have proven it. Oh yeah, says an ant. (laughs) That's the logic there. God's going to have his way. Here's my exhortation. Be on the happy side, right? Be glad that God's going to have his way. Make his desires your desires. That's the best thing you can do for life. And if that means the audacity, I don't like what God says about this thing in my life. I don't like that he gets after me for my drinking or my entertainment choices, my money spending or the way I treat people. I don't like that God has a say about these things in my life. Yeah? Change your opinion about that. That's all I got. Repent. I get Saul not wanting to relinquish his throne. That's a big position. A tall order to let go of. What I do not get is people who engage in self-destructive behavior. And it's like God is saying, stop doing that. I've given you power to stop doing that. What's your excuse? But I like spiraling out of control. I like making bad decisions. Let God have his way and see if he has a better decision or a plan for your life. 
Again, I say this with humor and slight meddling because I'm here. I have my own dumb sins that for no logical reasons I think I should defend from God meddling in my life. I like being overrate. (laughs) This prospect of a heart attack and diabetes are slight glimmers of fun on the horizon, God. God can have his way even in a free world. But for the things that we combat him on, let's just lay our weapons down. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's so great that we serve a Redeemer. Sometimes it humbles us to know that it's necessary because we make a lot of messes with our lives. We need a Redeemer to get us out of those messes. But Father, you have called us your sons and daughters. You've taken us in. As Hebrews tells us, you you discipline us like a good father does with his children. Help us to listen to that discipline. Help us to not question you on things because we see what's right before us. You see down the future. And Father, what's what's better is that you have good and great and glorious plans for our lives. Plans to help us be more like you. Father, would you make the sins in our lives tasteless, if not rotten tasting? Would you make the sins in our lives very unattractive? Would you throw the bait that Satan has lured off his line? And would you help us to become more like Jesus, to surrender, to yield to you, to say yes to your will and way, to do what you call us to do? Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.